Hello everyone and welcome to the Shining Mind podcast. I'm Dr. Selena Bartlett and I'm a neuroscientist and today I'm very excited because I have this amazing young uh, scientist with me. Welcome Jenny, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi everybody, my name's Dr. Jenny Gunter and I'm a, um, a cancer biologist at the Australian Prostate Cancer Research Centre where I lead a group um, specifically looking at cancer metabolism in prostate cancer. Wow, that's so amazing. So, uh, how long have you been doing that now? I have been at the APCRCQ for nearly 10 years. Yeah, I'm in my ninth year there. Wow. So, <laughs> and that's part of the Translational Research Institute, isn't it? That's right, yep, and QUT. So, yeah. yeah. And um, Jenny's got quite an amazing backstory um, about how she became a scientist, and I really want to share that with the audience because I think most people think that you go to school and you get the top grade and then you decide to, oh, I'm going to become a scientist. <laughs> and then you go to the top university and then you go and do a PhD. But I think your story is amazing. So do you mind sharing just a little bit about how you actually became a scientist? <laughs> sure, yes. I Did you want to be a scientist well, at high I, school? Yeah, yeah, I mostly wanted to audition for art school and become an actor. <laughs> Are you serious? No, I, I, um, <laughs> did, you I, really? I did. I did. I did. Oh, so that was your original dream? <laughs> no. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, not my dream. I think I always had really good support from teachers at high school who who helped me identify that that I was passionate about science. So science was always a passion. Okay. And um, what was the art school thing? Where, I just where was that? being what? up on a stage. Well, we have to be on. The, well. Well, this kind of works well then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, no, I was always headed to um, an undergraduate degree in science, I think. But um, so I did a biomedical science degree in Sydney. I had to leave my little country town. Um, so where did you grow up again? In Albury, oh. down, down on the Victorian border. Um, and, uh, and headed to Sydney to do an undergraduate degree and um, worked for a while after that in pathology but realized quickly that it was the it was the inquiry of research that really interested so me. So can you remember a moment while you're in the pathology labs that <laughs> were you asking questions or? Oh I think I I just I wanted to know more more about what we were measuring and more about the pathology uh, and so it was always in that disease science that my interest was the highest yeah. um, and so went and returned to do an honours year um, back in the day when it was when genetically modifying um, parts of our tissues was very very hot topic so that was the late 90s and we were looking at ways to to try and um, overcome the immune uh, the immune infiltration that destroys the beta cells in type 1 diabetes by disguising liver cells as beta cells and getting them to be um, able to produce insulin in response to glucose. Yeah, so for the lay audience, can you describe <laughs> sure. that? Like, so your honours project was, was looking at type was trying, 1 diabetes? Yeah, trying to find, um, trying to find ways to um, replace the cells that are destroyed in in type one diabetes. So, what actually? What's the what's in that at that time? What was the current best <coughs> thinking about 
what was causing type 1. Oh, so type, at that time type we 1 diabetes knew. is like... Yeah, so that's where the body doesn't recognise the beta cells as as a as a. So the beta cells are the cells that produce insulin, and insulin and glucose control are incredibly important to life. And um, too much or too little of either of those of glucose or insulin in your system, um, actually, insulin is the only hormone that will kill us. Our only self-producing hormone that is capable of killing us, and so. Um, the body, the, the cells in the body that produce that hormone are destroyed by our own immune system in type 1 diabetes because so we failed to, thinking, yep, yeah. and that was, we knew that at that time. And so we knew um, even if we got these liver cells to produce insulin, they wouldn't be recognised in the cell, they couldn't be destroyed in the same way um, as, the, as the beta cells were. So some, there was enough of a disguise around them. That around the, the beta cells in the pancreas? Around the liver cells that were being, that we had got to secrete insulin, mm -hmm. um, so that they wouldn't be under the same attack right. as the beta cells had been. Right. So we, we thought we could... Make a different organ. Yeah, basically, yes, yeah, and, and give these cells back to patients, take, take their liver cells, um, genetically modify them, and give them back so that they could have a replacement for the cells that they're immune system had destroyed yeah, as part of that disease process. So what was your role in that project? So that was very much a cell biology role which means so I was um, doing some of that genetic modification and so what, what um, you mean by that is being able to replace the genes right? Yes so I was very much still looking in a petri dish at the behavior of those cells in response to some of the cytokine attack that they would have normally been yeah. under. Yeah. And so, so what's the um, just out of interest what's mm. the percentage that do they think is explained by genetics in type 1 diabetes? Oh gosh, yes. Um, there is a genetic component. Yeah. It sits in the um, HLA risk um, um, group, it, in the HLA risk um, with another group of um, diseases like um, eczema and asthma and a number of um, diseases that are that are interrelated and there's a genetic component now and that was in the late 90s and there's probably a much more <laughs> better known genetic component as yeah. well. So um, you can have susceptibility basically yeah, to yep. developing type 1 diabetes yep, yep. but something like an insult from a viral attack like influenza or something like that or something in the way yes um, something in the way um, our our bodies learn to prime our immunity um, is is a potential. Yeah, um, we don't trigger. know exactly. Definitely, but there's some yeah, examples yeah, of that. Definitely, an underlying genetic susceptibility that's triggered by something else. It's not you can't you don't have a gene that causes type one diabetes. No, um, there's and a, you, but there's an yeah. assembly of them. Like, yeah, 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 a pattern of them that might confer susceptibility? Yeah, um, yes, so within this HLA locus, yeah. which is um, part of the, this description properly, but part of the um, um, recognition of um, the MHC complex. So in your body's ability to recognise and distinguish between self and non-self, or self and pathogen, yeah. um, there are there is some susceptibility there and that's that's why there is this series of sort of autoimmune conditions like um, 
eczema and asthma that uh, that are sort of within the risk is within the same the same gene locus. Yeah. So, as a young girl mm. leaving pathology, <laughs> entering infant honours program <laughs> with very little, really, very little background in that area, I would guess, mm. except for what you learnt from some textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> How did you make that step from being totally like, oh my God, how do I ever going to do this, to then feeling like you really knew more about it? Like the way you're talking about it now, like you're talking about it like an expert, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but you remember those moments <clears throat> when you first started at Honours? Um, yes, I think um, the key is to be is to be following in something that really interests you because that makes that makes the reading more fascinating and the reading around the reading more fascinating. And so did, did you have someone in your family with diabetes? <coughs> like oh, I had a friend, had a, had a friend, very close school friend who um, had type 1 diabetes. But I always found, um, I actually just found endocrinology incredibly fascinating. So endocrinology is the science of um, communication from one organ to another via the bloodstream. And so we release from a number of different places in our body hormones that then travel through the blood to communicate to other other organs and coordinate our body in that way. And I don't know why <laughs> I find that incredibly fascinating, but uh, I just do. And I guess that was born out of the fact that my job was measuring things in blood, so measuring different analytes yeah. in blood. <clears throat> and what you could tell about this uh, human system and the way that it was functioning or not functioning yeah, based, so based on those. When you were doing that pathology, what was your kind of um, take-home message for yourself from what you were kind of seeing? Do you know what I mean? That led you to wanting to understand the disease. Like, was there this thing like, wow, I have to be careful about what I'm eating because it leads to this or anything oh, like that? Yeah, you. I mean, you're acutely aware of... Um, I think you're acutely aware of what can go wrong and um, <clears throat> and thankful that it hasn't. <laughs> and so, yeah, certainly for um, for conditions that are avoidable, I mean, you, you're very aware of the statistics of, so type 1 diabetes is not an avoidable disease, but, um, uh, you know, for, for conditions um, that you can see large... Um, pathological consequences you what was the one that really struck you um yes I I mean I guess it wasn't until my next um, the next stage of my research that where I was working in obesity and then that became a really I became really conscious of the risk factors that were associated with obesity for diseases like type 2 diabetes and heart disease and um, and kidney disease, and so you, you can see all of that borne out in the blood, and can relate that back to to um, to people's lifestyles. Yeah. yeah. So after you did this honors degree and and um, came up with something really interesting in type one diabetes, mm-hmm. right? At the end of that, <laughs> what were you thinking? At the end of that, I packed my backpack and I travelled. <laughs> and why did, why did you make that choice rather um, than going straight into a PhD, for example? Uh, I, at that stage, I really didn't think that I would um, do a PhD. And why was that? I, so you found uh, um, I, I guess I was going to give 
um, I, I was going to try and have a chance at research. So at that point in time, you really needed your honours degree to be able to get a, a job as a research assistant. And at that point in time, well, that was that was my next goal, and that was enough for me. And so, and so I, um, but I definitely had always had a burning desire to travel, and thought that was probably the the point in time that I needed to go. And uh, also had a partner who was <laughs> also busting to get on a plane and, and do some travelling. And so that's the, the time where we took what I think is just a rite of passage for many Australians. Um, How uh, old were you when you left? 22, 22. Yeah, so so young, really, <laughs> looking back. Um, but I thought I was you know, very grown up at that point in time. Um, and so um, just by absolute chance we, we decided to travel to the UK and I um, and we were on there on a working holiday and uh, and so I so describe some of the jobs you did on your yeah, working holiday just lots of locum pathology again so um, th- and uh, that was all sort of organized via a um, uh, via a locum agency and so we were dotted around different parts of London and um, doing a little bit of work and then a little bit of travel and a little bit of work and a little bit of travel and I just couldn't help but have a look through you know the, the um, nature journals etc just see that the opportunity for research work over there I remember looking at one time and there were 10 times the jobs available in the UK as there were in Australia and I just had to try. So this is as a research assistant now? Yes, yeah. now, now looking for research assistant jobs. I don't know, incredibly impatient, I guess, <laughs> to get on with the next step. But just, um, yeah, had applied for a, a job and managed to um, manage to. So what was that. the job? So the job was um, working with a researcher, Dr Anne Clark, at the... Um, well, what was then the Diabetes Research Laboratories at Oxford University. So um, her interest at that time was on a, prote- on a protein that formed an, an amyloid plaque. So that's the same sort of thing um, as happens in Alzheimer's disease in the brain. But this forms in the pancreas of type 2 diabetics. Really? Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard about that before. Can you explain what that is about? Um, so the um, so IAPP the thinking was, or the, yeah, yeah um, well that's what we were trying to, to really work out. So this this amyloid is laid down, um, destroying parts of the pancreas. So type two diabetes it develops in a very different way to type one diabetes, um, in that we put pressure by increasing our uh, our weight gain or by um, changing the way that we metabolize glucose and insulin, we put pressure on our beta cells to produce more and more insulin to sort of keep up with our glucose homeostasis or, the, or modulating or normalizing So what sort of food glucose. would be driving that? Um, well, yeah, so too much, really. Just too much of so any type of food except yeah, for Yeah, well, maybe. obviously we, I mean, anything that's calorie rich is going to so that'd be high fat food, high fat, sh- high, high, sh- high sugar containing yeah, foods, exactly. processed foods. Exactly right. Too so much meat. It, um, well, uh, not much necessarily. Protein. I mean, I think the real equation is um, if you're eating more than you're burning, then you're you're storing that. So really, if you've got um, sort of low nutrient, high calorie food 
that you really have in excess to your requirements and the, out, the, uh, the result so of that. So in response is to that, the body has a homeostatic <coughs> device oh, to so counterbalance it. Yeah, so uh, I mean, um, insulin is going to respond most acutely to simple carbohydrates and, and sugar. Um, and, um, and so we can see, um, in, you know, insulin peaking, insulin will um, react, will react with the, the metabolic tissue in your body to, um, to make sure that the glucose is then cleared from your blood where it, you know, where we want it to stay within a very certain range. Um, and you know anything that's excess to requirements is going to just be stored by your body. And so yes, in particular, I guess it's the, it's the glucose and the or, you know the sugary and, and fatty yeah. foods that probably contribute to that the most. We I don't know about you, but I probably don't go two or three hours without putting something in my mouth <laughs> during the day. And that's the nature of, of the availability of food I know. in the modern world. Which is so. why intermittent fasting is having such powerful effects. Right, yeah, to re to reset the hormones that control whether we're yeah. even hungry or yeah. not and, yeah. and what those signals are. Maybe yeah. we can talk about that at the end. Mm. Yeah. So what, what happened in your um, that lab where they dis- had they discover amyloid in those cells? Oh, they had already. Yep, they'd already sort of discovered that through looking um, histologically at um, the tissue. And so, is it um, like the same kind of plaques and tangles that have been identified? The way in that the proteins um, kind of refold and um, and form that plaque is very similar, which is why it's defined What's as that. What's its kind of main marker? Yeah, so it's made up of a protein called IAPP, and this is a protein that sits in the um, the same little granules as as insulin, and so it's released with insulin. But for some reason, um, that that is becoming this plaque and destroying some of the beta cells. So now beta cells that are trying to trying to keep up with the um, extra secretory um, requirements of a body that's now um, got too much glucose in it. Um, I haven't even talked about insulin resistance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's um, just curious. Yeah, so that um, uh, is having a secondary effect of destroying, um, be, or t- uh, yeah, destroy, destroying beta cells, but also um, taking up the area now where beta cells once were. So you're trying to produce more insulin with less beta cells than you would have um, um, prior to. to just a quick question. Yeah before we move on, can those cells be regenerated? That was a really big argument while I was in, um, <laughs> while I was doing my PhD, and I think there was a real divide across the Atlantic Ocean, actually. Um, and I would be, definitely be arguing um, on the point of the humans don't really regenerate their, their beta cells, but mice do. And You mean um, regenerate the same ones, or regenerate? Or even or from stem cells. But really? Yeah. Yep. So we can we can look at um, we have a paper actually looking at um, the accumulation of lacrofusion in beta cells and aging them accordingly, and we really you can see some beautiful beta cell regeneration in mouse models, and that was an argument that we could find a way mm-hmm. to regenerate the beta cells in these patients, but you just don't see the evidence in histology samples from or tissue samples when you take so them even from, people that were obese from humans and lost a lot of weight 
can they regain their insulin sensitivity? Oh, insulin sensitivity? But then also, Absolutely. But that's through... But with just the beta cell mass that they've got. already got. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, absolutely. So you're regenerating the health of the ones you actually yes, have rather yeah, than destroying right. them. That's right, yeah, yeah. So you... Um, um, this the, is, I think this is really important information for yeah, people to understand. Yeah, sure. So I guess um, fundamentally, before in the period of time before you develop, before you, before the development of type 2 diabetes, there is a decline in the way that our body can um, metabolize glucose. So we get a uh, what we call insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is basically the, the um, ability, of, ability of insulin to signal in your tissue, such as um, your adipose tissue and your muscle and your liver, to um, bring the transporters that suck the glucose into the cells um, is reduced. So you've got high levels of circulating uh, insulin and high levels of, importantly, high levels of circulating glucose at a time where you shouldn't have a high level of glucose. The signal doesn't signal properly through the liver. So when you're fasting and your blood glucose is pretty low, your liver kicks in and starts to release glucose to keep your glucose levels up in the blood. Well, it doesn't shut down properly when you have a meal. And so you've got these, these two higher levels of hormone, um, well, hormone and metabolite um, circulating in, in your body. Um, that's a, that is, a, 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 you can see improvements in your insulin sensitivity with changes to, to um, diet and weight loss and, yeah. Um, yeah. and exercise. And that is reversible, but you can't, um, the, the ability of your body to, and your body is able to adjust to the amount of insulin that it needs to produce to accommodate those changes to your glucose levels to a point. But certainly um, amyloid deposition um, is incompatible <laughs> with, with um, an improvement in your, um, in, in, at least in the beta cells that you lose with that amyloid deposition. But um, uh, certainly you can ask a lot of the remaining beta cells under the right conditions. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So, Jenny, then you went on and did a PhD in the same lab. I did, yes. Was I it on the same subject? It was partly that, but actually by then we were um, uh, really seeing the relationship between, really trying to understand the relationship between um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and we were looking at specifically the effects of um, fatty acids and um, the sort of increased availability of those fatty acids on beta cell function. And so the second half of my um, work there was, was looking at, um, at the cell biology and how um, increased uh, lipids were um, affecting glucose-stimulated insulin yeah. secretion. Oh, that's cool. And, yeah. So tell me, um, what were some of the challenges you faced? Well, I mean, doing a PhD at Oxford is no <laughs> easy task. <laughs> Is it? Well, right. no, I think so I was telling you, just, you the other day that yeah. I um, I kept waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder and remind me that I'd gone to a little regional high school in in, uh, in Australia and what did I think I was doing there? So I absolutely um, fostered a really good um, 
sense of imposter syndrome. <laughs> and <laughs> Oxford, yeah. Well, it's a very old <laughs> university with a lot of history, uh, and yeah. especially being a young woman. <laughs> yeah. I think, when did you do your PhD again? Like Oh, early, uh, I finished in 2005, yeah, so, so three years prior to that. I mean, yeah. things have changed a lot, but still yes. not that dramatically. Yeah, so yeah. can you talk a little bit, I'm just curious um, about some of the challenges you face while, like, while you were there doing a PhD? Like, what made you keep going when I'm sure there's many times you oh, think it was too definitely. hard? definitely. And I definitely had a conversation. I had um, just the most amazing and supportive supervisor there, and she was completely instrumental in me staying. There were definitely things happening back here in Australia, including the diagnosis of cancer in my own father, that I wanted to come back and just be close to family and... Um, and um, and just be at home, um, and uh, and there, of course, there are always challenges in a PhD scientifically, and so she was an incredible um, support. Uh, you know, really like the family away from home. So she was always making sure that we were okay where we were, but also when things got challenging with different um, parts of the project um, then we could work through those together really well and so so can you name a couple of the <coughs> things that really hit you in the face do you remember because I can think of moments during my PhD where I'm like this is it that's it no more <laughs> can you think of those yeah I'm trying to think of what triggered I remember having a conversation with her at some stage just saying I think I'm going to um I'm thinking I just need to write this up as a master's and go home. And, um, and her saying to me very clearly, you're not writing this up as a master's, Jenny. This is a PhD. So do you remember what it was? I, I'm pretty sure we were finding some parts uh, some parts of the amyloid story um, incredibly challenging. So this is a, a, a protein that we were trying to isolate, which the moment it exists is, is, um, is going to form amyloid. And so we um, we did our best with um, parts of that, and we did it, we had a lot of archival um, uh, material too that we could do um, some some good um, immunohistochemistry studies on, and and that's and then of course turned our attention to the the lipo, the emerging lipotoxicity story, and I think you know we just managed to segue into that quite well and. Uh, and that would have been the, the moment where it's like, well, we've just changed the changed the um, the focus of the of the thesis yeah. as a whole. So having a good mentor does help a lot. It, it was it, it was the difference between me having a PhD and not really. Yeah. yeah, I was I was ready. I was ready to just pack it all in and come home to where life could be easier. Yeah. And um, but the lesson is you didn't. Well, yes, yeah, yeah. And so, and actually just had someone say, um, you're going to make it through this, you know, that you're, that you're capable of doing this. Yeah, Whereas so I think I... Having someone believe in you. Yes, yep, yep. At a, at a moment where I probably just didn't think yeah. I was in the right place yeah. at all. Well, part yeah. of our podcast together is really that moment you just described is to scale that to as many people as possible that may not get that same particular help. Yeah. Because yeah. I had exactly the same thing also and I now thank her so much for those moments 
where she believed in me when I did not believe in myself. So that's part of what we're trying to do here is help people understand that you've just got to get up and know tomorrow is another day Yeah, and really believe that you can make it too. Just like you've made it through, you know, Mm. you want to help other people see that that's possible. Yeah. Like even if they're in the middle of their PhD now or whatever they're doing now, a career, there's always that lull isn't there that it's like a rhythm a phd is a definite rhythm yes and i think that is something that followed me into um so it was my second postdoc where i met you and i think that's something that that followed me into there and so uh, it's um that moment where where you're not doing this as well as everybody else is doing this and why aren't you managing to do this as well as everybody else and I remember um, just a a very early conversation that you and I had where I um, where I just always had a plan B I just always had okay what am I going to do when this job runs out because it was such a certainty to me that this job was going to I was coming to Brisbane to do two years of a postdoc and then I would have to think of something else to do with my PhD because um, I just didn't understand how I could possibly sustain a research career and you were the first person who ever said to me put that down (laughs) we are not going to worry about plan b okay we will worry about that if we need to worry about it and so much of my headspace that I wasted thinking about what am I going to do when I don't get this grant what am I going to do when I don't get this fellowship was just I got to just tuck that in a box and just put it away in a dark drawer somewhere and not think about it and not waste that that energy thinking about what that what was in that box I'll get that box out and I need to get that box out and in the meantime I'm going to turn around and focus on the research that I am funded for and yeah the freedom of of leaving behind um, old Jenny. Yes. Uh, well, and just the, the the Jenny, the doubtful part of the yeah. doubtful Jenny. Part of the doubtful Jenny is still with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, but that's human nature. Yeah. Everyone has that inside them. But I think what you're talking about is really the mindset mm. of of your brain will take you to ev- wherever you want to take it. Yeah. yeah. And by yeah. splitting it like that, it's taking you in both directions. Yes. Exactly. It is like. It is, I'm going to give you the worst case scenario first, Jenny, and then when we've dealt with that, we can, yeah. you know, whatever energy we've got left, we can focus on what we were supposed to be focusing on the whole yeah. time. And that was definitely the person that you met yeah. when, when we first yeah. met. Yeah, and I think the interesting thing was in that group of women all struggling, that voice you start to see was a voice in everyone's head. Yes. You know, yes. You, and sometimes you think it's your own, you're the only person that has that voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before we, I just want to say that that doubtful Jenny came from a PhD in Oxford <laughs> to a, what what position at the University of Queensland? You won yeah, a fellowship? I did win a fellowship, yeah. yeah. Which so is can, just outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> like when you look, I know for you it's just like joining the dots, but really it is outstanding. Yeah, so and still what you, would have been. What were you researching when you got the fellowship again? Were you still doing... Um, well, still in obesity yeah. and metabolism. So still, yeah, um, and very much still interested. And who in, were you working with? I was working I, with John Whitehead, yes. who is now back in the UK. Um, and we were working on um, 
proteins that were where well, we were looking at the process of um, adipose tissue development and um, and proteins that we thought were really key in that process and um, uh, and so moved I guess from being a pancreas beta cell person to um, understanding much more about adipocytes and, and so, adipose so, biology. Yeah, so that's the fat, fat cells. cells yeah. Yeah. Um, I would just want to point out here, did you have, when did you have children so, in that process? Yeah, just I worked with John for about five years and it was in that fifth year that I had my first um, child. So that takes us to when? Twen- 2009. Yeah. <laughs> 2009 was I, um, I had my first baby. And um, uh, and actually came back from maternity leave and um, we'd missed out on our opportunity for a grant. And so I came back to maybe three months of the end of a contract and then, um, and then had no, nothing beyond that. And so um, definitely that was the time that I was definitely leaving research. Well, especially now you have the maternal hormones. Right, oh, yes. Gee, I like, remember that. Why would I? <laughs> I remember that time. The, like counterbalancing of this beautiful baby with science. Yeah, that yep. you love. Yeah, and I One think that really is an definitely ongoing, dominates yes, in your head. An <laughs> ongoing and constant challenge is... Um, is the guilt that's associated with this career that you've busted your gut to get to and now you are essentially um, sharing your own ambition with the ambitions that you have for for the um, raising a child and your family too. and yeah and and your commitment to to everything that the family needs and um, yeah nothing has solidified more in my mind the questions of Oh, are you going back to work full time? Or um, oh, that's a shame that they have to spend five days in childcare, which were never directed at dad <laughs> ever. That still was still right? right. That's still even which today. Which is the I bit think. we're trying to change with yeah. our podcast because <laughs> I had this amazing um, uh, woman who's a professor um, in optometry at UC Berkeley, and <laughs> she's got a similar story to you. End up at Harvard, etc. And her husband ended up looking after their daughter. But she said to me, Selena, the only thing that's ever going to make things a big step change is when the fathers are doing stuff at home. That, oh, yeah, absolutely. Or when and that never occurred to me. Yeah, when employers have an expectation that there's a baby in the family and mum and dad are going to be asking. Yeah, for which it, is happening for somewhat time. in Denmark. I think it is. Yeah, and I think some it, Scandinavian there, there, you can see a little bit of it here in Australia. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'm seeing that too in yeah. the last 10 years. So but that's really the big, which is what we're about to, right? Yeah, yeah. We want to make those changes yeah, yeah, because yeah. the guilt should be equally shared. <laughs> that's right. And, Step up, Dad. <laughs> you know, like, and I don't know the answers because at all but I just know that that would have made a huge difference for my for mm. me too mm. because balancing that period of time when you when your kids are just number one yep. at the same time in science specifically but I think this kind of applies to many careers <coughs> is that we have a yearly cycle of mm. papers and grants mm. and they do have a thing now where you can say what has happened to disrupt your career but yeah I don't know how well those little sections are read. Yeah, I, I yeah, I remain skeptical. Yeah, <laughs> that, but um, you've managed to do it. That's why you. That's why we're talking, right? We right. want to help other people that are going through these same problems that we both went through, and nearly everyone is that mm. we know, mm. specifically women in science that we interact with. So, 
now I want to get to the point of um, we'll finish at the end some tips and tricks that people can use like your plan A versus plan B <laughs> that's a good one right because then you could put all your energy into one basket on the sure. science and career yeah. side yeah, so you yeah. can put the other basket to your children for mm -hmm. example um, but I want to just talk a little bit about your step change from University of Queensland to to the Translational Research Institute where you moved really <coughs> coolly Mm. You took all of that knowledge and now you're working in prostate cancer. That's right, yeah, and I think yeah. that's really interesting <laughs> for the audience to hear about the, sure. the similarities um, and crossover and yeah. how it's relevant to developing new treatments for prostate cancer. Yeah, it has... Um, it, yeah, there's a lot of serendipity and timing <laughs> and chance in science and this was really one of them, I think. So um, I... Um, I always found the idea of moving into cancer research it was it's this behemoth of science and um, and there was no way that I could possibly catch up on the on all of the, there was to learn about cancer um, in time for an interview <laughs> but certainly um, where I where I joined Colleen Nelson at the um, prostate cancer research center was on a project that was looking at an intersection between metabolism and, and cancer. So I was still quite in my comfort zone um, in terms of... The cell biology. Of the, of, and my background. So in And you're funded by <coughs> the no November, right? We were funded by Movember yeah, for which is fantastic. the prostate cancer. So it's um, nice for people to hear what that money's been doing oh, to. Oh gosh, we, um, they are major funders of prostate cancer research in Australia and um, uh, yeah, we would have not had jobs for the last five years without funding from November and the Prostate Cancer and Foundation And the stuff that Australia. you've managed to achieve in that time is pretty outstanding. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> so um, we've, yeah, so we, uh, when um, typically um, under a, um, un with a localised, with a, with a, um, Diagnosis of localised prostate cancer. Um, there's an excellent survival um, expectation for men who are caught early enough to get that disease. So they'll either undertake radiation or, or surgery to remove the prostate, and there's a 99% survival <laughs> five years um, after that. So just really great statistics. But for some men who are diagnosed with metastatic disease or where the, this is where the disease has already come outside the prostate, or um, if that primary therapy fails, then what we know about prostate cancer is that it's very androgen, or it's dependent on androgens for growth. So it's dependent on, again, the hormone and <laughs> testosterone to grow. And so the therapy um, which has been used for 50 years, is to deny testosterone to that um, to the tumour, and that's today. These days, that's done with a hormone that um, blocks the receptor in the brain that then produces the testosterone in the testes. So you stop the production of testosterone. But that actually has really um, profound metabolic effects in men. They actually do much better when they have testosterone and that's where our interest um, uh, uh, that's where our interest um, is derived from so the um, men who then develop metabolic side effects 
they develop an insulin resistance, so their insulin increases in their blood, um, and their um, ability to clear that insulin is reduced. And um, and men who have higher insulin levels or develop this metabolic syndrome, they actually fail the treatment faster. So there's something that's inherent in the biology of the metabolic dysfunction that they develop from the therapy that progresses the tumour faster. And we weren't that's really amazing. looking at all at, we were aware of the side effects. We knew these men who can sometimes be on this um, anti-androgen therapy for years were then developing metabolic symptoms that actually put them at risk of cardiovascular disease, etc. So we were <laughs> kind of were giving them a second chronic would disease. Would they get metabolic dysfunction, like yes. become overweight too? Like it definitely changes their mu muscle mass to, um, to fat mass, yes, yeah, yeah. So that's a condition. That kind of happens with schizophrenia, side effects of some of the medication. Oh, okay, yeah, right. So. Um, Yes, absolutely changes. Well, it, I mean, it's it's an important hormone for muscle conditioning, and um, uh, this is testosterone. And um, yep, so there's changes to muscle versus fat mass. There's changes to the lipids that are circulating in these men. Changes to um, their kidney function. Changes to um, their insulin. And the insulin happens within weeks of commencing. Um, therapy, so you can see uh, the development of um, of uh, insulin resistance within about two weeks, but really by three months, you've definitely got a deterioration in there. So what did they do to? <coughs> they did well. They did nothing. <laughs> so it wasn't treated at all. It was just an un it was just an unfortunate side effect of the therapy. Um, so do they have to take? Well, now so we. Um, what was unknown was well, one of our first thoughts, I guess, was, well, why can't we um, use? Uh, I guess the other important factor actually is, um, while the rest of the body is becoming insulin resistant, we now know that the tumours are becoming very, they're increasing the amount of insulin receptors that they have available to signal, and that insulin signalling. Um, it will drive pa um, pathways inside a tumour cell that increase its growth, so really promote these, these um, uh, cancer pathways, and um, as well as increasing them, their metabolism and allowing them to store very useful fuels for, 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 cell, um, for cell division as well. And so um, it's, they're, they're doing something different to what the muscle and the liver cells are doing in becoming insulin resistant and they seem to be almost becoming more able to, to use our ligand. We can't just block an insulin receptor because <laughs> that's quite catastrophic metabolically to the person to a person to yeah. do that. As I said, it's one of these it's a very critical hormone and it needs to be able to to signal through the rest of the body. So it's not a great target for cancer, but there are drugs that we use for um, the treatment of type 2 diabetes that can improve yeah, like the metformin. insulin sensitivity like metformin. So could we not apply these drugs to limit the amount of ligand that's so signaling to the tumour? What's your view on um, fasting in this case? Um, uh, so fasting would be activating pathways that would counteract 
um, the effects of insulin um, and including the activation of the same sorts of pathways as, as metformin um, would would activate. So do people try this intermittent fasting protocol with? Um, is there any people doing that research? I haven't do seen know? any intermittent fasting in prostate cancer specifically, but potentially, <laughs> or whether or not that's organised into a big clinical trial. Certainly metformin is being um, incorporated into another a number of clinical yeah. trials. So is that what you're mainly working on now? Well, the repurposing of these metabolic yeah. drugs into... Um, as a co-therapy, yeah. so not as a single no. therapy, um, yeah. absolutely. So where are we up to with that in terms of, um, what are you, your group up to in terms of clinical trials and that kind of We've thing? Run a other We've run a pilot trial um, looking at the effects of, um, of metformin compared to standard of care and... Um, in combination. <laughs> in, yeah. yeah, so this is men who, were, who have... Um, come to the clinics with metastatic cancer and they're put on androgen deprivation therapy, which is exactly what they would do um, with or without this trial. And then we watch them over 12 weeks and we could see that they deteriorate metabolically. Um, and at 12 weeks, they're then randomized, they were then randomized to either placebo or metformin. And we could see that metformin, an unknown question at that point in time was, would this have yeah. any effect to the person that didn't have diabetes? And we could see that there were, um, there was an improvement or a lack of deterior further deterioration of their of their metabolism um, with with the metformin treatment, um, but didn't get powered to see um, changes to the prostate cancer outcome um, due to time and numbers. Really, at the same time um, as we were recruiting um, the charted trial, which was a trial that took these same men and gave them adjuvant chemotherapy, so that's chemotherapy alongside the, the hormone therapy, and that proved to be efficacious. And so a lot of our men, if they were healthy enough to go into chemo, followed this, the, the results of this charted trial. So there was a change in the clinical management of our cohort at the same time. This is one of the moments in science that... <laughs> um, <laughs> that, uh, that uh, ruffles the feathers a little but um, uh, yeah w what we've continued to do actually is we try and understand um, more of the cell biology of what's what's occurring in this androgen deprived prostate cancers and prostate tumors when we use this this secondary drug and certainly um, there's a number of other um, drugs that we and others around the world are, are trying to sort of capitalise on the way that the, the tumour cells rewire their metabolism I in know. response to that that's, first therapy, that first really therapy of hormone therapy. Yeah, yep, yep. And so in a way that non-cancer cells don't seem to use or, or use less, um, the, this rewiring that occurs in cancer cells to begin with and, and what then what's the rewiring from to <clears throat> well it you know we used to think it was a nice and simple explanation of um, potentially becoming um, more glycolytic which is a, a description of sort of bypassing the need for so much of the metabolism to go through the mitochondria and um, use an, a lactate pathway and the reason that cells 
tend to do that is because a number of the intermediates, intermediate metabolites in, um, if anyone remembers um, <laughs> their TCA cycle, so this is the, this is the, uh, um, the mitochondria is the little powerhouse of the cell and it's producing most of the energy for the cell and little some of the metabolites that occur within the pathway that the cells undertake or the mitochondria undertakes to make that energy can inhibit path uh, can inhibit um, cell cycle essentially and so you bypass that so that you get you lift that inhibition and that takes you down the glycolytic pathway that's looking just at glucose and we've been really focused on glucose um, in cancer cell metabolism and as we go through some of our sort of big data sets and understand better the complexity of the way that um, the cancer cells are in fact uh, metabolizing in particularly in response to therapy is that they will salvage energy from anywhere and they are trying desperately to keep um, acetyl-CoA pools and pyruvate pools and a number of amino acid pools just ready for action. They need that energy to create new cells and to, to split and divide and um, build so more tumor mass. So it's demonstrating the They're really adaptability good yes, all yeah. of us yep. in general. Mm. I mean, look at we've managed <clears throat> to survive millions of years of evolution. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. And I'm cancer sure cells are, are kind of like that on steroids. Yep. And, going, yep, and going back to some very, um, very um, basic pathways that they would have used as a clump of you know um, as a zygote you know as a, as a clump of reorganizing tissue as they were becoming an, an embryo yeah you know and going back to some of these yeah, yeah, pathways we, we, we go backwards <laughs> exactly exactly so they are like they're drawing on sense. some very old pathways yeah. that they wouldn't have used because um, they didn't need to yep and then they but they're able to pull them in when under the right stresses and yeah. so I do sort of compare this to um, a map of the London Underground. It's my mm. favourite analogy, which is, um, you know, you, you see that there's a, a block at, at, um, at Oxford Circus, but there is a, going to be a way that you can still make it to your destination. You just might have to go back and take so a different line. So where are you going? Like you, you want to go to Piccadilly? <coughs> yeah, exactly. And there's a block somewhere? So. And so you just have to work out which line it is. And during that reorganisation, that is the moment in time that I think we've potentially got an opportunity to um, to identify vulnerabilities in these cancer cells and to block that secondary pathway and block wow. that that other train line. So that's what you're working on now. So that's yeah. So we um, in in the in the dish in the lab. That's what we're yeah. trying to organise. Which what do we need? How many of these do we? How many of these lines do we need to hit at once? Um, using these drugs that we've been using for years in the clinic for other diseases, yeah. um, to be able to really just <laughs> so make that um, cancer cell just on a, a high level question, what's the link between obesity and prostate cancer then? Yeah, so is there a susceptibility driven by that? It's not, not as clear really? as in other cancers. Um, I think you know breast and colorectal and ovarian cancers. There's a very clear link between obesity and the risk of a diagnosis. That's less clear with prostate cancer. Some studies suggest there is, and others don't find a relationship. But absolutely, um, the data on um, what your, uh, I guess, um, um, obesity status or the amount of fat mass that you have or your insulin signaling 
or your insulin sensitivity at the time of a diagnosis, um, the relationship between um, that and the aggression of your disease or your survival time or your, um, your response to therapy, those sorts of things are very much um, have uh, very much shown to have a relationship. So, so what I'm hearing then is <coughs> it's not necessarily obesity, but it could be your fitness level. Yes, you so, can be thin um, but not fit. You, you, yes, so this that is way true. You're not yeah. monitoring your. Yeah, um, just we uh, just question. I don't yeah, know. I guess, and I'm showing my own bias because I'm thinking specifically around the hormone insulin. And so, if you've got. Um, if you're have got uh, if you've got some insulin resistance and therefore a high level of insulin circulating in your in your blood um, from whatever reason so hypogonadism or or obesity both of which will cause you to have a lower level of testosterone naturally um, and a higher level of insulin resistance anyway um, will both of those will be um, associated with yeah, decreased survival, more aggressive disease, quicker time to treatment failure, yeah. etc. So, it I'm is just a thinking of the initiation of prostate cancer. Like, I'm wondering because you're talking about, I don't know what the role of insulin is in that, but I'm just wondering about how you're talking about muscle mass and tone um, driving some of that. So, I'm just wondering the link between. Um, muscle. Yeah, I don't think there's a great deal of evidence for the initiation. Um, of that, I think where insulin becomes a really key hormone um, is the moment in time where we take the testosterone away. So right. that is now okay. in advanced prostate cancer patients. So no one really understands what what's <coughs> the causal. We know that it's for we, prostate. No, not yeah, no. Um, we know that it's in, it increases very early in disease the insulin receptor expression, but we've really got no further evidence than that. And we know that there's this sort of reciprocal relationship between testosterone signaling and insulin. So there's no um, kind of factors outside genetics that have been shown to be more correlated with getting prostate versus some other types of cancer? Um, As your first... It's It's not as clear cut as other cancers, I think. Yeah, other cancers, there's definitely... I mean, colorectal yeah. and bowel cancer, for example. I mean, we would have a fraction of, like, a tiny fraction of the amount of patients if um, if obesity was taken out as a risk factor. Well, isn't um, that interesting? Mm. That's totally modifiable. Mm. Mm. Honestly, yeah, really. And so, um, so has there been an upswing in the diagnosis of colorectal cancer since, at, with the upswing in obesity? That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yep, yep. Highly high risk factor. Ovarian as well is yeah, okay. endometrial cancer. Anyway, I should stop there because <laughs> we're both scientists and this is can't, we can't help it. So my question to you is: Then you've managed to have two children during this time, mm. and now you're um, now your group leader running your own research. I mean, still within the center, but that's really amazing. Congratulations, because making those steps is not easy. So how? Are you managing your family, your children, and your career now? Yeah, that I you've think... you've got over the hump in some sense. <laughs> I think there were definitely a couple of years there where I was almost losing my mind with stress, and, um, and which was the moment that I think I'm, I met you. 
Um, and so that was just another amazingly timed <laughs> moment in life. But I, um, it, yeah, it was a management of the guilt around the things that I wasn't achieving and um, that the inner critic constantly reminding me of what I wasn't doing and um, the fact that I was prioritising everything above myself. I was absolutely putting myself last. I was constantly um, stress eating. I absolutely Can you was describe not... that for the audience? <laughs> I mean, I did that too. It's it's from um, from my perspective. It's just a lack of even realizing I was stressed. Yeah, and I, I was just eating yeah. to me- modify something I didn't even realize. Yeah, I, yeah, that's right. I think that was quite. Um, it was quite insidious. And um, can you just describe back, sure. like an example? Oh, well, if I was up late, um, I'd put the kids to bed. But now I've got a grant that's due. I have to get my computer out. I'm and what going time to are reward, we at now? Uh, yeah, probably 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. I've got to cover the two or three hours of work ahead of me at least. I'm going to reward myself. I'm going to make myself a cup of tea or maybe something stronger. Yeah. And um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to open a box of chocolate biscuits and I'm going to eat those with that as well because, damn it, I deserve this because I'm working so hard. And you need the energy to and stay I, awake. Yeah, I, that's right. This is good energy that I need even though I'm really not prioritising any kind of exercise to balance that back out again. Well, you um, don't even think... think the comfort. That is not even your head. No, just, no. It's, it just really wasn't. And I had always been a fairly... Um, I'd always run and always exercised and so all of a sudden that had just stopped and I wasn't no acknowledging time. that Feels because like no no, I'm not prioritising that over other things that I've got to do after getting meals out and lunch boxes made. Can I just ask you, um, for you <coughs> personally, what was the moment, did you ever even realise that the weight was going on during that time? I got on the scales at one point in time because we don't really have scales at home so I think I must have been on holiday somewhere and there were scales and I weighed more like significantly more eight or ten kilos more than I had ever weighed in my life and I was that was the that I was shocked because you don't even real it's just I I, call it the slow creep in my book Smashing Mindset I talk a lot about that because this was me but mine was over a much longer period of time and it was very slow but the amount of food I started to eat, the types of food I was choosing, yes. yep. and how I was medicating my stress with one glass of wine, two glasses of wine while I was cooking dinner. Yes, yes. Um, kind yep. of thing. That was where it was starting. And it's only in retrospect. But during that time, my mother used to call me and say, are you exercising? You're over 40 now. You need to exercise. Yeah. And I'd go, and I'd just get really mad at her. Same, yes. And I'd go, what, at 3 o'clock in the morning? And at 10 o'clock at night? <laughs> it's really funny you should say that 10 o'clock at night too, and I'll come to that yes, in a minute. Yeah. But, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, um, the, I, when I first, when I found myself at that weight and I thought, I come from a, I have done a PhD in obesity and type 2 diabetes I understand the risk that I have putting myself under here and I know that I am just walking into becoming a statistic and I'm not changing my behavior but you weren't thinking that at the time though this was after you weighed yourself this is after I weighed myself yep no in the moment up to there I was just trying to exist (laughs) I was just trying to hit deadlines at home and commitments, oh, sorry, commitments at home and How deadlines at work. How old were your kids work. during that time? But look, that's when they were um, preschool and just maybe into school. Um, 
it would have been the first one or two years of of my oldest daughter's schooling yeah. years and sleep the, deprived too oh god yeah <laughs> I think I was still sleep deprived yeah. but um I'll work on that yeah. <laughs> um but say so, oh the tent so yes that was the moment where I said well bloody hell if I can't get this right what hope do do we have you know I know exactly what these risks are I know exactly what um, the consequences the consequences of this of this lifestyle is and um sat down with my husband and said oh my god you've got to get behind me here I need to change I'm going to go and join the gym and I went to the gym at 10 o'clock at night that's when I went and I started to get on the gym which is and amazing it just, and I um that's about amazing the, oh god. you're so exhausted you are so exhausted it really took all of my willpower well, yes <laughs> brain yeah, power yeah. as I like and to say a little bit of fear and so um I um, well, not fear, realism. Was it really the weighing yourself that was the light bulb? Or it was a combination probably of different factors that made you actually do it? Because, you know, we yeah. all have these thinking, and I did too. There was many tears in dressing rooms for me after yeah. all of that <laughs> with my sister and my mother when all of a sudden I was at a size in my clothing that I just couldn't fit into the clothes yeah. there, basically. <laughs> and that never, yeah, anyway... Um, still took me some time though past that for me to make big changes the big change came for me was um i was on my 40th birthday around my 40th birthday a personal trainer from the gym called me up and said oh see you've got a birthday coming up i don't think she realized which one it was but um i (laughs) so you're already in the gym i'm already in the gym but i'm making it maybe once a week and i'm getting on the treadmill and it's bloody midnight or it's yeah, while yeah. the kids are doing oh, something Oh, so this else. is when so, you're after you've got... So I got myself a gym membership, but then a trainer yeah. calls me and um, and I um, had a couple of sessions with her. I still see her um, and every fortnight and we laugh now because at the time that I saw her, I said, Brianna, I absolutely do not have time in my life to come to the gym more than twice a week. Don't try and schedule me because I'm busy and I can't do it and then we've got to the point now well so I'm uh, was 42 this year so I've been seeing her for about two and a half years and in that time she's trained me up to the point of doing a half marathon where I was having to train five times a week where was I finding that extra time and I think honestly it's the chocolate biscuits right you replace the chocolate biscuits with uh, the exercise right I yeah so the value of that exercise on my stress is um is totally tangible I can feel it I that is the big difference between the moment that we met Selena and the mo- and the moment that we sit in now yeah. is understanding yeah. you're really the, fit that and replacement people can't see you, but yeah <laughs> yeah I, I remember yeah. meeting you in that time and that was your big thing I couldn't believe yeah yes yeah. how to manage the stress yes and the yes family. that I would just get to these and moments yeah. where I sat at my desk for 45 minutes unable to unable to sort out what I needed to do that day because everything was an alarm going off in my yeah. head and, the, and it was and exactly this Miggy it was the, and once we gave that a name yeah. and I love we call it Miggy <laughs> because it's such it's just such a um almost ridiculous name and it and it um demotes the power of that stress yeah. and that we panic. haven't even talked about that yeah, but yeah. 
just for the audience, Miggy is just the part of your brain. The, you can read it in the book, but basically it's a part of your brain that's activated by stress. Mm. And when we medicate it, because that part of the brain is wired very strongly to your nucleus accumbens, which is where you seek reward. And the brain doesn't like stress, so it makes you go for the chocolate biscuits mm-hmm. at 10 o'clock at night because you haven't mitigated any stress during the day, as an example. And me also, when I got the understanding of that, and then you're making it, you're basically changing because the stresses are still in your life, right? Yes, you? nothing you've else still has got changed. Your beautiful children, <laughs> and you've still got everything. Yeah. Now you've got probably students as well yep. as yep. just your own projects, yep. and and you've got to get grant funding. Nothing's really changed. You've still got your partner, everything, mm. extended family. But what has changed is Jenny's managed to be the power inside it be the boss of her own brain right how she's going to handle it and that wasn't and you know and I it's looking back now after two years and thinking oh okay that was that daily event of stopping and realizing that I had hit this moment where um, I was overcome by by the stress and and um, and just okay, what are the real consequences here? And I always use that analogy. You used to send photos of cats that had cucumbers put behind them and things were just cucumbers. And I could, you know, this is just the Mickey and that is just a cucumber. And, yeah. you know, we are going to get through this. And another piece of <coughs> advice that we talked a lot about, and I, I had to learn this the hard way, mm. but I know that you've implemented some of it at your young age, which is wonderful, <laughs> is where in women tend to take on the wrong kind of jobs when they're trying to escalate their career. They start to do things like managing teas and coffees and <laughs> stuff like that because we think we should. Yeah. And oh, we think yeah. it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And we've yeah, talked yeah. a lot about... The paddle to say yes to everything. <laughs> yeah. Because we, we tend to be nurturers and carers, which is wonderful, but at the same time, it doesn't add to your career necessarily. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think some of those decisions were really good that you made too. Yeah, being yeah being not really easy. Ca- no, and against my instinct, yeah. like you say. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, completely. That's um, and understanding understanding the power of good enough, you know, and not trying to um, to spend more time and energy on something where what you've got is completely adequate for the for the job that yeah. it's, it's got to do. And so, um, you know, I think as scientists, we are completely trained out of that thinking. You know, we absolutely want to have all bars covered and, and all possibilities explained. So um, can I just ask you on yeah. the exercise at 10 o'clock at night, do you still do 10 o'clock at night? Or I, were you able to change that? Or did yeah. you stop doing the chocolate biscuits for, absolutely for the audience? Absolutely like, have. Yeah, so absolutely would say that I've replaced the chocolate biscuits with a box of vegetables um, because I don't I don't reach for food in the way that I used to. Um, it's not a reward did, to me how now. How long did it take you, did oh. you would you say? People yeah. always ask that, how do yeah. I get started? How long is it going to take? I think the daily reminder was incredibly important because it made you rethink it. Now, if you if you think it and you still just want that Kit Kat, then have it. Yeah, have it. <laughs> Don't guilt yourself about yeah. it. But um, but that rethink it was an important step, and I, I would say it was maybe six to twelve months yeah. that I started to see that big behaviour change. But it it was replaced with something else, and so it was replaced with I, I'm 
I've got a stressful thing that I've got to come home to. Actually, if I just go and spend 45 minutes at the gym, I'll come home with energy level, higher energy levels anyway. Um, Which is the counterintuitive. I know. Because when we're in that space, we think we don't have more energy to give. Yeah. But actually, what I discovered too is it actually gave me more energy. It does. Is, yeah, it wakes you up <laughs> nicely. So, like, <laughs> so obviously, I still do sneak to the gym after the kids have gone to bed, but not exclusively. So there are, yeah, it, it is just something that was brought back into an expectation of my family life. That, that Jenny goes to the gym. I'm going to go to the gym. Yeah, and mum's going to go and do some exercise now. And, and the whole family benefits, for, right? Yeah, right, 30, 45 <laughs> minutes, maybe an hour. But then the kids are seeing that they should be doing that too. It, uh, yeah, the, the behaviour modelled, yeah. it's and, and the accommodation that mums need to do these things, they can't, they don't need to be there every hour of every day and you can say goodbye to them for a short amount of time while they do some self-care. Yeah. That has taken, yeah, I think I've only reflected on that in maybe the last six months and just thought, when when did that happen, yeah. actually? That has happened in a very gradual manner yeah. over probably well the last done, two years. Because I wish and I did it at 40, <laughs> not 50. Well, thank you, because, I, <laughs> because you, you totally catalyzed yeah. that change in me. Well, I, we haven't, we're going to run out of time now, because, but thank you for your time <laughs> so far. I think the bit we haven't talked about is how that kind of, for me, that pattern, it's not just about weight. For me, it ended up in something worse mentally. You know, mm. for me, it led, it led to depression mm. because I didn't step in at 40. I kept it going. I didn't listen to my mother. <laughs> and, and I had the same awakening because I'm a neuroscientist and I should have known better <laughs> too. And I was studying all of this for a really long time. And and so I'm really proud of you that you made Thank that you. now yeah. because I'm very it's, grateful. <laughs> yeah, but it's just better now than waiting like I did because it it doesn't it's not about your body, is it? You're managing the stress. Yeah, yeah. Which is and you're just changing how you're handling it. But stress adds up to something much much greater and it, too. And it was. I I remember getting to the end of one certain year and telling friends and family, "This is I've had it." And this is a stupid way to live. I am so unhappy, and so, <laughs> and so, yeah. How close was I to, to that sort of decline? And I'm not sure. And yeah. I don't have to worry about it. Now yeah, no, you don't. I well, now you know, good, right? Now you know. Valve that I can open yes. in the gym, and that makes yeah. a very big. It's a. It's just a replacement for other behaviours that were far more detrimental. Yeah. The interesting thing that we that now I know and didn't understand at the time is that by having that. The, the wine with the dinner or then for me I was I, I'm very similar I, I'd like the sugar after mm. dinner um, and at the well I was at sitting at sitting a lot at my mm. desk and I'd already yeah. been sitting for 10 hours yeah, during the yeah, day or whatever yeah. um, is now I understand that 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 feels good in the short term but it actually makes you then more stressed the next day yeah yeah because of the way the alcohol and now we just discovered sugar yeah right, binds to that part of the brain and actually makes it even more reactive mm. so that reason why you shut down the next day again yeah, and it's right. accumulating why it took a while for me is because it's just building up over time and then sitting this mm. so you've got this double whammy effect happening so mm. yeah anyway mm. just curious how that is mm. one of the things that you gave us advice on as well was the moment where where we could okay we can recognize that we have a miggy happening that we've got this stress that's actually overruling logic <clears throat> and our ability to sort of compartmentalize and 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 um 
and prioritise what we've got ahead of it, in front of us. And um, our... Um, Just how you handle it during the day instead of letting it build up. Um, no, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It'll come back. <laughs> um, well, just knowing that that's wiring your brain too, those little stresses. Unless you do what you're doing, then you are wiring your brain in that direction too. <clears throat> and that it, you can't think clearly when that's happening. Mm. So during the day when you're doing your work or whatever you can't do your optimal work when you always got that on the background yeah well right exactly like if you can't even write yourself a priority list because you're so <laughs> stressed yeah. about how how long that that list is and also learning it comes in from multiple generations oh right yeah so we now know through potentially through micro rnas yep. so the way you're handling things or that talking has been inherited to so you actually can't change that fact. So the only yeah. thing you can change is making these changes. Yeah, right. Because now slowly. you're, yeah, <laughs> we're going to be changing it for your kids too, because they're going to be mirroring your behaviour. Yeah, yeah. Well, gosh, yes. Add to the guilt. <laughs> <laughs> Not meant to. <laughs> so, um, thank you so much for everything you're doing for science. <laughs> thank you for everything you're doing and for, for women, scientists. And for women. Yeah, yep. Um, yeah. Know that you can become a scientist and have a family. You know, <clears throat> you're managing it all mm. in, in some mm. sense. Uh, I'd love you to give some advice to some young women that are thinking that science isn't really for them or it's for geeks or nerds or <laughs> things like that. Um, you know, I think we have a fun life. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's nothing quite like scientific inquiry and discovery mm. in terms of life work. Yep. Often in moments where I've thought this is insane and this week is insane and um, this lifestyle is crazy, that that moment um, I've asked myself, well, what else would you do? And the uh, the academic freedom, the freedom of thought and of, like you say, inquiry and discovery is absolutely so... Um, precious and lucky and yeah. um and, and privileged to to work in and so each time i think um that's it i'm just going to go and buy a goat farm and raise goats <laughs> and just get away from grant deadlines i realize how much i love discovery and learning unknown things the best thing i think about this job is every day you learn something new also sometimes the most exhausting thing about this job is that you have to learn something yeah new. but it's but absolutely it's yeah. it's such a lucky it's such a lucky job i often think of it um i only <laughs> learned about hump day recently oh yeah because <laughs> i never knew about hump day um you know and all of this because for me personally i never friday is friday is the same as monday to me yeah right um, yep and saturday and sunday for me yep. it's all like i feel like my it's not that I just work, but um, I think I have a mixed emotion about Friday. Friday is the end of a week and look back at what you've achieved, but it's also a moment where it's like, look what I didn't get done. I can't remember the job. But, but I you're did. not looking forward to it because you hate your job. <laughs> oh, looking forward to the weekend. Right, yeah, no, it's the end of, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's what we got done this week. And so, um, and yeah, like you say, it's not, 
it's not a job that you tick all the boxes and go home on Friday night and everything's done. It's absolutely yeah. not a job like that. But um, but it's just so, for me personally, mm. I feel so grateful to have found it for mm. me because I feel like it's a, for me it's a purpose, like a very strong reason to live. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Like, and it's a, a purpose outside of myself. Yeah, because so, you're trying to help other people. There's nothing like it. That's an incredibly rewarding part of the job. And I think that's what it would be very difficult to replace. And so on those days, it's like, get a grip. <laughs> you don't want to be doing anything yeah. else. You and just so need to take some deep breaths. And So and I think what we'd like cucumber. to see is that although there are these challenges, which is really like any job, to be honest, especially mm. going to the future where everything's really changing so yeah. rapidly with innovation yeah. and uh, robot, you know, robots, etc., I just love to see more women come in and try it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, the visibility of women in higher positions as well. I mean, that has changed so much since I was doing yeah, my well, PhD. I didn't have where any, yeah. You were told you choose a career or a family, which is probably why I never imagined the career in any really long-term well, term sense. Well, that's what I mean. Because is, yeah. that wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't a, a binary decision for me. It was like, oh, yeah, not mutually exclusive. So. Um, so that has that has definitely changed, and we're in an environment, particularly the TRI, I think, where we see women in those positions, and you more you and more so it, now. You, you can be it, you know. It's much easier. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember the, and partly why I want this series <laughs> in the podcast is because when I was doing a postdoc at the John Curtin School in Canberra. Uh, back then a man stood up and said he wanted to create a, a women's only position, senior position, so young women like myself, I was in the audience, could have someone to look up to. Mm. And there was only two senior people that were women back in the day. And he said, let's face it, there's a men's locker room out there and women aren't invited. Mm. So they don't get the same opportunities mm. for these reasons you're talking about. So this was in the 90s. And the only two people that shot down that were the women in the room. Oh, God. And so at the time, I was, I was just a postdoc. I hadn't had children yet. And I'm like, damn it, if that ever happens and I'm in a position to change that, I'm going to bring them with me. I'm not going to do that because yeah. it was so disheartening. Yeah. Because I, at the time, the minute immediate thought to me was like, this room is not probably 80% senior men. They all have families. Right. Yes. And These it's are like, all why dads. can't I have a family and be a scientist? Yeah. And so that's partly why I want to do this too. Yeah. It's yeah. like to help people that are struggling in that moment when you want to, because we all either want to have kids or you don't, and it's not about whether you do or not. It's just about knowing that there are people and that we can change the way things are done mm. so that we can be sharing the load. Yes, yeah, that, and that load share. Our brain, that load share and the expectation that that load will be shared. And I, I think, think you made it very clear that you have a very, very scientific, amazing mind, <laughs> right? And you've managed to have children and you're still thinking about new ways yeah, yeah, that things yeah. can work even though you've had two children, <laughs> right? Your brain, ha kill your brain hasn't gone to mush. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I understand the competing things because I, I still believe that my children are probably the best experiments I've actually done. Or we'll, have to, we'll have to see eventually whether that works out in the long run, but overall so it true. feels like that. <laughs> yes. And so that is a competing thing when you have these other yes, experiments yeah, that yeah. you're doing. But ultimately, I think it's just, I'm just so glad that yeah. you stayed. Thank you. And that you yeah. haven't quit. Right. Well, and, and I that's hope you it. do I this. I think when you look back and you say, 
we were, we are much better for me staying. And, and what would I have what would I have personally given up to have left? And and what would I be telling my daughters now when they say work really hard in school and go and get your PhD and then quit and then just give it all up? <laughs> and this is oh, what, so, glad so you on didn't the days where they're like. I wish you had been there yeah. and I can't be then that's that's the that's the conversation that we have, have yeah. Yeah. yeah and I have that still yeah all the time <laughs> all the that time that's a conversation that I will have. no matter what age yeah, yeah. like yeah. I can imagine I'll be like in my 90s <laughs> and I'll have my my grandchildren having to explain to them sorry but I just have to do this thing for now but I'll be there at yeah. five o'clock yeah, or whatever. yeah. um I can see that for sure, but um, so I'm just really thankful for everything you've done. Thank you. I'm really proud of all the changes you've made because change is really difficult. Thanks, Lena. Especially You're under tons of stress. Instrumental <laughs> in that that daily reminder, honestly. Is, yeah, yeah, just keep it up for your kids, and I hope that one thing I know that is going to come, if nothing, from this podcast. <laughs> is the fact that your children are going to hear your story <laughs> and hear how amazing their mother is. So you'll be able to have this. We'll have it recorded. I'm going to send it to you so you can have it forever. Lovely. So thank you, everyone. <laughs> I hope you got something out of it. And um, please join us um, as we pursue this realm of looking at amazing women in science <laughs> and what they're doing to make it all happen. Tell me what to do. Change me.